in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my magnetic co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Doing awesome, Patrick. And Patrick, you know we're very lucky today. We are? Yep. Because we have a very special returning guest. Oh, we do. Again, don't say any, don't say anything. <laughs> Straight from Midland, Texas, we have a Sarah on. How are you doing, today, Sarah? I'm good. How are y'all? <laughs> very good. And we were talking earlier uh, lunch about how much Midland has grown, and it's amazing that you know it's actually now become an expensive place to live. It is. Yeah. And what'd you say about the uh, most expensive square price, square, per, square foot, price per square yeah. foot in Texas? That's amazing. Yeah. And before we go any further, hey, if you want to support the show, do me a favor. Leave me a review. Leave me and Patrick a review. Leave me and Sarah and Patrick a review, right? It takes all of three seconds on iTunes. It's the best way you can uh, support the show. So go do it. So, Patrick, we have Sarah back on. We're going to talk about a little something different today, aren't we? We did. And I've I've only dabbled in it because of, you know, work closely with some lawyers on contracts. But we wanted to really talk about the implications of an actual incident. So when somebody gets hurt, whether it's offshore, onshore, in a plant, on a pipeline, or there's an environmental spill. What are the legal implications? What are the financial implications? What is the kind of response that a typical company, big or small, what do they need to do when you first have an incident all the way until everything's resolved? So, and I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that could be anything from a, a drop of oil, you know, trickling out of a pipe to a, a Macondo type event to somebody smashing their hand to a rig burning down, which God, I you know, hope that never, never happens. Again. Yeah. But so I want to kind of throw it to you, but in, you can take that in any number of avenues you want, but big or small, when a safety incident happens, what, what's kind of the first response that a company needs to do or that you do when you're brought in? Right. So I think let's back up, right? Before anything happens, you need to think about what are we going to do if something happens? Have people in place. I think one of the, the best ways of managing an incident that I've seen is the NIMS ICS system and that there's roles and it's basically run like a military response. And I'm for this is for something that's a major incident, right? I mean, but just as important. How, sorry, but how would you define major incident? <laughs> that's a good one. I'd say if it's something that's ongoing for more than a couple hours and is going to have more than a million dollars at stake. Now, that's not always... The problem with that is it's not always easy to determine when something's happening. Right. Something can start off small and escalate quite quickly. Right. Exactly. Or you think something's not a big deal. And then two years later, you get served with a lawsuit where you've been sued and you realize, oh, this is now a big deal. So the, the biggest thing is having internally protocols for recording incidents and reporting them as you're required to with OSHA, with the, the state environmental regulatory agencies, right? And your insurance companies, like for a any type of anytime you've got a pollution type incident, there are usually very strict knowledge and reporting requirements. So even if you think that you're not going to have a claim or a lawsuit related from an environmental 
perspective, I recommend that all of my clients do what's called a border row report. And what that is, is basically they take the HSC reports of any type of spills and they forward it to the insurance company every month. And they say, not that we're submitting a claim, we're just letting you know, these are the incidents that happened. And then they make sure that they're within their, their time reporting requirements under their insurance policies. And, and that's something good to point out too, because the first spill that I remember being involved with, it was a, we were transferring drill water to the rig and the hose busted, which happens occasionally, but it was just drill water. So we replaced the hose and went on with our work and the work boat reported it, but I didn't, I didn't think it was a big deal because it was just drill water. Right, it's drill, water. Wa- drill water going into the ocean. What's, what's wrong with that? It was a spill. It was a recordable spill. And that was my first involvement with, and I'd been through training of what to report and, but I thought it was anything that was a pollutant and no, it's anything that spills and you need to report and then some higher level authority will decide whether or not that it was a, a big deal or not, or whether it's an environmental incident. Right. And so Sarah, you're actually talking about business planning, like in the beginning of, of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, before you guys are doing operations, right, these need to be considered. Yeah. But you're also talking about building process and protocol in so that if something does happen, if there is a triggering event, you have a plan to follow. Right. And, you know, I was actually reading – uh, in my nerdy risk management magazine on the airplane <laughs> yesterday. Is that uh, the title? Nerdy risk management? Almost, yeah. <laughs> that they now have some software that puts people in a game type situation of planning and re- learning to respond to an event. So, you know, it's one thing you sit in a, in a conference room with a PowerPoint and someone tells you, if there's a well blowout, this is what we're going to do. It's another to have basically an autopilot type uh, event of here's the blowout, here's what your gauges are reading, here's the the press is trying to get in, here's what the state troopers are doing. We've got a grandma that's stranded in her house that needs to get out. We've got livestock that's been reported as dead. We've got whatever it is and actually implementing and practicing in a simulation type environment. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea because we all know when you're sitting in a conference room on a PowerPoint and you're checking your phone, you're checking your Facebook, you're not really paying attention, and you're not practicing it. Patrick, man, what a great use of gamification. We need to find out who that company is and see if I can get them on the show. But Sarah, you're right. Instead of halfway paying attention to a boring PowerPoint present, to actually get to try it, because the, the risk is nothing. If you make a mistake, it's just a game. But that real world, pre- man, that is awesome. Yeah, I thought it was... It was- and I've seen some of them, and you'd be surprised how how much anxiety you build up when you're in a simulated environment. I got to watch... Some students going through a it was a bridge simulator, you know, it was a it was a ship and they were they were in New York Harbor in an actual incident that was being replayed, but they had the environmental conditions turned down. And I said, Well, can you turn them up to what it actually was? And they turned on the fog and you saw all these students start just moving around. They they didn't know what to do with they you know, they were checking things and so the the anxiety the level, the the stress level shot through the roof just in that simulation. Right. So you, you can get real world env- uh, environments in those simulations. So you just validate it when I start yelling at Call of Duty that it's okay. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Now I feel so much better. So beyond the prep stage, so you right. you're doing everything that, that's that's required. You're actually drilling. You you have your your teams come in and, and do simulations, but you get that call. You you know an incident happened. Right. And it could be, you know, minor, somebody got hurt, but anything that happens, you're going to shut the rig down, you're going to shut the facility, you're going to shut the pipeline down. I guess, in your experience, what are the next steps there? And maybe not the incident management, but the legal implications. Right. Okay. So immediately, my thought is you need to get an attorney involved. And two reasons. One, it helps start 
triggering of attorney-client privilege and work product protection. And back up and explain what those two are. Okay, so anytime you hire a lawyer and you have communications with that lawyer, those are privileged, meaning that the other side, if you end up in litigation, cannot discover those communications. There's an exception if you're involved in crimes together or something like that, right? But generally, if you hire me as a lawyer to give you advice, what I tell you is between us and neither of us can be required to tell anyone else what we talked about. So it's why you always need to be absolutely honest with your attorney first is because they're bound in confidence. And if we don't know about it, we can't help you fix it. So we have to know the whole truth, nothing but the truth, (laughs) right? The good, the bad, the ugly, let's get it out. And then let's figure out how to deal with it. So one, you start that protection early, which then lets you do a more honest assessment of let's actually figure out what's going on, right? So why is the well on fire, (laughs) right? (laughs) Why? Let's figure it out. So I'd say, one, have a lawyer that you trust and call that lawyer so that they can be there to help you, one. Make sure that you have in place subject matter experts within your organization that when there's an incident that they know this is what I do and this is how we report. I think the other big thing is to make sure – PR that you've got, you're keeping the press out, that you're taking cell phones so that your blowout doesn't end up on YouTube, that people aren't sending emails. And I think one of the big things is, especially when you're in a remote area, right? If you've got executives that are back in the office trying to figure out what's going on, oftentimes there's emails and there's communications back and forth of what's going on. And what somebody thinks is going on hour two of an incident is probably not really what's going on. And later on, that's going to end up on a projection screen in the middle of a courtroom, highlighted with the other side saying, look, this is what they said. They knew, or this is, right? right? Yeah. It's, it's always going to come back and bite you. So pick up the phone. If you can not write it, don't write it, and have a phone conversation instead. And make sure that people understand that their roles and that they're not, saying things that are going to come back and hurt and be used against you later on. I think yeah, it's the biggest. It's a, we talked about this other uh, just a while ago, but um, you know, I'm the director of public relations at API for a reason. Nobody else on the board is allowed to talk to press for that exact reason. And I, I've had a lot of training and I take it very seriously. You got to be very, very, very careful what you say. And sometimes even very careful what you don't say. Right. right? And so, you know, all the gas industry as a whole, typically there's a certified spokesperson, a PR person, a corporate communications specialist, but you don't want your employees running their mouth because a lot of times they only know a piece of the picture. Right, exactly. Yeah. And what Sarah said is exactly true. You don't want it to get out in social media and pictures and videos and calls. Part of emergency preparedness drills that I've been a part of, one of them is to, and I pictured it as a big kill switch, they kill the internet. You have no no phone, no internet communications for the crew. And although the command center will have it, whether it's on the bridge or in the control room, but yeah, that's part of it. You you don't want pictures and people calling their wives and telling them everything that's happened. You also want them focused on the event. Right. You don't want them distracted distracted by something else. I right. mean, people take selfie pictures and stuff bad goes on. No. <laughs> no, they stop shooting video. No. I'm, I'm always shocked when something's going on and somebody's sitting there on their phone. I was like, call nine one one, get out there and help. What are you doing? Right, <laughs> right. And I think that the other the other part is make sure that you notify your insurance right when something happens. When you start having a really big loss, you're having a blowout, you're having whatever, especially in environmental, oftentimes you cannot do anything without the insurance company's permission. And so if you start incurring costs and you start doing things that aren't in line with your insurance, it may preclude coverage later on. 
another aspect of that is having someone that's familiar with your insurance help you in setting up your AFEs and how you're going to respond to an event. Because how you typically allocate costs on a day-to-day basis internally, if you're going to drill a new well or you know, new protection on a pipeline or whatever it is, is made maybe different than how insurance will pay for it. And what you don't want to be doing is six months after an incident, going through 10,000 field tickets, trying to figure out if these mats were at this well or at this location and trying to allocate costs after the fact to try to get insurance coverage. I never even thought about that. But yeah, I mean, that has to be super important. You have to have that process at least in place so you can make that switch. Right. Otherwise, you're sitting with me in a room, a conference room, and I have lots of clients that will tell you, I mean, as great and fun as I am, you don't want to be sitting with me in a conference room for three or four days going by each invoice (laughs) trying to figure out, okay, where was this cost incurred? Why was it incurred? Does it go under our well control policy? Does it go under our environmental policy? Does it go under our general liability policy? So having an understanding of that, and again, if you do some of that beforehand and understand big picture, here's what insurance is available then when it comes time to actually set up those AFEs and, and start paying for your response, it's more organized and it's it's easier. Hey, so, Sarah, I have a question. It's Are the insurance are the insurance companies an asset to a company? So let's say I'm a, a, a small operator and we're getting ready to drill a new well. Before I start, can I use my insurance company to help me figure some of this stuff out? Will, will they actually come in and help? Yeah, so sometimes, yes. Uh, lots of policies have some type of supplemental help of risk assessment, for example. So if you've got, you're going to do something, you call your insurance company, there may be coverage, not, I guess not a benefit of your insurance, where they'll come in and they'll say, uh, walk through your office building, for example, and say, oh, well, here's a trip hazard, you should fix this, or you need a railing here, some, some stuff like that. Um, well control policies almost all have coverage for well control experts. So, you know, if you, in the event of a blowout, immediately they'll send somebody out from wild well control or somebody like that. Yeah, because I never even thought about using my insurance company as an asset, but listen to you talks like, you know, I bet my insurance company knows this better than I do. Yeah. So it's what they do. Yeah. So we talked about as the incident's going on, you're notifying your legal team, you're notifying the subject matter experts, you're notifying insurance. When do you have to notify your regulatory body, your OSHA, your BSE, your your fire department? I know a lot of companies will put that off because that's now you've involved somebody and you can't really do much. So where do they need to get – where should you involve them, I guess, right. is the first question. And where legally do you have to involve well, them? Well, it depends, <laughs> right? So once you get a reportable spill, you're pretty much required to notify uh, – there's usually a number. You know, there's like a one-call type number of 1-800-whatever-it-is, and then that starts the chain to go and figure out, okay, who's actually going to take control from the regulatory side. And that's usually like within 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever right. I mean, of I think, the incident. I think technically under most of the laws, you're supposed to notify them as soon as possible. And if you don't do it within 24, 48 hours, whatever the, the cutoff, then there starts to be serious penalties. But in general, you want to notify the regulators as soon as possible and get that relationship started. If anything, it helps you. They're going to start directing response. And if you're able to point and say, look, I just did what the regulators told me I had to do, right? And I think that's a good, you talked about doing the prep work, getting in touch with those organizations when, you know, 
one example pops into my mind is the U.S. Coast Guard. If you have a rig in the Gulf of Mexico and you need Coast Guard assistance, you need to know is is the helicopter going to come out of Galveston, New Orleans, uh, Florida? Are the boats going to come out of the same location and knowing which station to call? It, ha- having those relationships built up, whether it's in a drill or just a right an and, introductory. And I've seen the regulators can absolutely help you, especially with the press. Right. So when they decide when they determine what the boundaries are going to be and they start barricading, they can help make it a no fly zone. Right. So that the the news helicopters aren't up there recording it. And uh, if if you are kind right to the regulators, uh, they they can really help you and they can also really hurt you. If, well, that's if I had a professor and uh, he had been sailing for 50 years when he was teach me at A&M, but I remember he said, never call the Coast Guard. It's like calling the police on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> did he have that accent? He did, yeah. He was. Uh, he also wanted to make my last name Pistois. He was from Louisiana. He wanted me to be Cajun. He, no, Mr. Pistois. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So next stage. So we've, yeah. you know, we've, I guess let's fast forward a little bit. Now we've, we've had the incident. Everybody's been notified. And now let's talk about the, you know, the legal implications of having an incident. Right. We talked in the car on the way over here that I like to see that follow-up. If you have an incident, I want the information to be shared on what was the root cause, what were the mitigations put in place. But that doesn't always happen because there's legal concerns, there's lawsuits out there, there you know, it's all the cleanup that has to get done that can drag out for a decade sometimes. Right, right. Yeah. I think – I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it. <laughs> you always have to assume there's going to be a lawyer involved in the future. If someone's hurt or someone's property is damaged, you're going to have to assume that people are going to fight about it. That's just the way it is. I also think, though, if you genuinely, your heart's in the right place and you're trying to do right and you're making decisions as best as you can at the time based on what you know and you're honest, that's the best policy. Because especially as a lawyer coming in to represent a company, if I'm able to go in and say, look, it was the middle of a of a disaster, right? Every But maybe they did X when they should have done Y or however we ended up here. But now they're trying to do the best that they can. And I think that that's really important because then you can explain it and you can justify it. Where you run into problems is if you're trying to save money or you're trying to cover your own butt, right? And and so I think it's being open and honest and, and really trying to get to the bottom of it is always the best policy. And unfortunately, you have that. I've seen you know, backdated JSAs, backdated permits that there was seen a, people try to wipe laptops in the middle of the, one of the worst disasters in the Gulf of Mexico. The, I mean, the most egregious I heard recently was it was, it wasn't oil field related. It was a home builder. A guy fell off a ladder and died. And the company said he had all his fall protection on site in the court proceedings. It come to find out the, the owner of the company had driven by the location, dropped off the fall protection and left. I mean, that that's the worst I've heard, but that it was very, very topical. It only happened like six months ago that this came out. But unfortunately, there are some people that are going to be worried about that CYA. They, you know, what did I do wrong? Did I have all my paperwork? Is How is this going to affect me? And that's, like you said, not the way to go about things. You need to work to. Right. I recognize that there's, if something bad is happening, someone made a mistake, right? And trying to cover that up is never going to help you. So. Not that you have to go around telling everyone about your mistake. Right. Different, right? <laughs> but is addressing it and saying, okay, let's make sure that we do this the best we can. And I kind of call it the grandma rule. Like if you wouldn't want your grandma to know what you were doing, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. So 
assume that grandma's watching, what decision would you make? Uh, I've got to make a lot of better life choices. <laughs> <laughs> no, I forgot where I was going to go. I had to make a stupid joke. <laughs> so the whole thing I was going to bring up is that all go back, goes back to intent. Like, what is your intent? You see that a lot of times that, I mean, I've seen it myself in, um, before uh, companies decide to actually go ahead and proceed and, and fight it out in court, they try to understand what actually really happened. Like, what were you trying to do? I've, I've actually seen some big oil and gas companies offer the peace branch because they figured out, oh, you weren't trying to screw me over. You were trying to do X. It, but it almost got really squirrely on it. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. So how much is this going to cost me? <laughs> <laughs> so it's. I, I think there's also a little bit of being afraid to spend money on the front end ends up costing you a whole lot more on the back end. Front end, are we talking about setting things up, policies, contracts, insurance? But not just that. Once there's been an incident, not wanting to get lawyers involved, right? Especially if you don't have in-house counsel. If you're a smaller firm and you don't have an in-house attorney, paying for a lawyer seems expensive. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a whole lot cheaper to get a lawyer involved in the beginning so that they can help you, advise you, and show you the implications that your decisions now are going to have. It's a whole lot harder if I get brought into a case six months after the incident happened, once there's been a denial of insurance coverage or once they've been sued, trying to then come up with the response. One, because now I have to educate myself about the facts of the loss, right? So if you're involved in the loss, then you're there real time. You experienced it. You have that background and knowledge, which is helpful going on. It saves time and effort. But more importantly, you can help advise and guide. We're counselors at law, right? I mean, we're not just here to fight. We do provide guidance and counsel. And so I think, but anything, you know, a safety expert, outside consultants. People are reluctant to either get a third party involved or to incur costs. But when something really bad happens, go ahead and and over-prepare, right? And bring them in. And then if the next day or two days, it's like, okay, this isn't that big of a deal. We've got everything under control. Everybody can go home. But if you don't, you miss out that opportunity. And it, it oftentimes ends up being not just more expensive bottom line of you're having to pay people, but the time and effort of your internal workers who are then trying to deal with the situation, their time and efforts aren't being spent on business as usual because they're distracted with a lawsuit or whatever it is. So what should I be looking for? If I'm a small small organization, I don't have in-house counsel, but I had an incident or I'm worried I'm going to have an incident in the future – I, I'm obviously not going to go get a real estate attorney, but what what specialties are we looking for? Do they have to know your industry inside and out? Do they need to know the, the regulatory requirements about reporting? What, I guess, for safety and environment, what are the things that you need to be looking for for an attorney? Right. So I think one is finding someone who understands your industry and knows the business of the industry because everything has a cost-benefit analysis that has to be done, right? So under, some of the that understands the industry and doesn't have to learn that is key. And then a lawyer that's familiar with your, if you have an ongoing relationship with that lawyer, then they can kind of come in and with the ball running, they already understand how you operate, who your people are, that helps. And then someone that's familiar with these types of losses. So yes, a litigator, someone that's drafting the contracts that's involved, it's the easiest and best way. But if you don't have that, then ask you know people in the industry, right? This isn't the first time a well blow out, right? So 
if you've got contacts, hey, who did you use? I mean, that's where I think most referrals come from. Just like if you're going to go to the doctor, right? You, you, you know, you need X. You ask your friend who had X, did he like his doctor? Right. Same kind of thing. So you kind of sidestep my earlier question. How much is it going to cost me? <laughs> and let's, let's make it a little easier. When, yeah. I, when, I, when I hurt somebody, what, what should I expect? We, you know, am I, uh, we're obviously going to cover his medical. We're going to do, you know, he right. was hurt on the job. We want to do what's right for him. Should I expect a lawsuit every time somebody gets hurt on the job? Definitely not every time an employee gets hurt. That's the whole purpose of workers' comp. So anytime an employee is injured, in exchange for them getting guaranteed medical expenses and a little bit of money, they're not entitled to sue the employer in tort traditionally, absent some type of intentional conduct on the part of the employer. What that means in practice is that there's less litigation between the injured employee and the employer. But that injured employee is probably going to sue anybody else that was out there that wasn't their actual employer. If a third party is injured, the public's injured, there's a release that affects property of a third party, right? Then there's probably going to be litigation. So I think long story long, right, (laughs) is if someone's hurt very badly, there's more likelihood that they're going, there's going to be a lawsuit. But some people are just litigious, right? I mean, you can't help, you can't predict necessarily who's going to be the one that decides they want to sue you. And just because somebody sues you doesn't mean that they're going to recover anything, but you still have to respond and, and then you're involved in litigation. So on the other side of that, as an employee, if you get hurt and it's minor or major, however you want to divide it, what would be your suggestion? Because anytime I've ever heard of somebody get, getting hurt in the oil field, they're somebody is going to tell them, oh, I know, I, know, I know a personal injury attorney. Don't sign anything until you talk to this person. And that kind of advice gets thrown around. But as a lawyer, what would you actually suggest an employee do when they're injured on the job? Well, first, tell somebody, right? <laughs> I mean, you would be surprised at how often someone gets hurt and then doesn't tell or doesn't say anything and then tries to come back later on and say, well, I hurt my back three weeks ago. Well, why didn't you tell somebody? So follow the protocol and report it and do what you need to do. And that happens, I think, more often than people think that, yeah, you don't want to, especially if it's something you're not too sure about, like a back injury, you don't want to be seen as the weak link in your your crew. So you go and then it escalates into something else and then it becomes an issue you have to tell somebody. Right. So I I report it. And then, I mean, obviously, I always advise anybody that thinks they may have a legal issue to consult with a lawyer. But that doesn't mean, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of lawyers out there who aren't Again, how's a nice way to put it? I think that there's opportunistic people in any industry, right? And so if there's someone- She doesn't want to say ambulance chasers, but- <laughs> There you go, right? So a good lawyer will tell you, this is the situation and either I can help you or not. And if the company's not going to do what the company should do, then it may be worth hiring a lawyer and, and pursuing your rights. So, Well, that's something to point out. What, what should you expect from your employer? You get hurt, you go to the hospital- do you expect somebody from the company to be there with a piece of paper, hey, sign this real quick? And what is the appropriate response that you should expect from an employer? Yeah, I mean, I think the employer should send their safety guy. If somebody's been hurt, there should be a representative of the company. There's obviously going to be a drug test. There's going to be a statement of what happened. You know, I think anytime someone wants a written statement or a recorded statement, anybody should be leery of that. Okay. So ask to have your lawyer there. I mean, you may irk somebody, right? But the company's probably going to have its counsel if they're smart. 
And if and that's a distinction. So not no, you, not their lawyer. Get your own lawyer just to be there, be present for you. Is that that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's oftentimes it's not clear who the lawyer represents. Right. But the lawyer represents the company, not the individual. And so uh, that may mean that I have a, a relationship with general counsel or whoever it is, but my obligations and my fiduciary duties are to the company itself, not to the individual employees. And if it becomes clear that someone within the company was responsible for the incident, then they are going to probably need to have their own lawyer. Now, oftentimes the company will pay for that independent lawyer, but you want to make sure that there's not going to be any conflict of interest. And usually the attorneys won't let there be a conflict of interest. Yeah, you would hope not. Right. Uh, Patrick, we uh, should have did this earlier. We didn't do our Red Wing safety tip of the week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who do you want to... You got another one, Sarah? Yeah. So how about there is no incident too small to worry about, right? I mean, something that seems like it may not be a big deal should be properly documented and responded to. Yeah, that's so, a gr- great tip because uh, we all know people, uh, including ourselves, that had something minor happen and then something makes it escalate and all of a sudden something that was minor is not Yeah, just, just like she said about reporting, let somebody know when you get hurt. Even if it's just a pinpricks, it could get infected. If it's three days later and you actually have to see the medic or go to the hospital, they're going to ask you why you didn't say anything. I didn't think it was that big a deal. I'm sure every company that is out there has something in there to report all incidents. If you violate that, you may be foregoing some benefits. So Right. Yeah. Great tips, Sarah. It's two in a row. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to start winding this show down. Hey, Sarah, I know you've seen it before. See that bag over there? Yeah. That's the Red Wing Offshore bag. I didn't win it last week. Well, then you can try again because you can enter every week. It's really simple. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there, and we draw one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. We should have Sarah read that part. No purchase necessary. <laughs> See official site for rules and details. <laughs> So if you're enjoying what we're doing and you want to uh, stay a little bit closer to what Patrick and I have going on, go to our website, oilandgashse.com. Give us your email address. We promise never to spam you. And everybody on the email address will be notified first of the cool stuff we're, we're doing. And then we're also looking for event sponsors, Patrick. And we got a couple for this year. We're looking for some more. If you'd like to get your company in front of some really good prospects for a very inexpensive price, we can help you. We will do a whole bunch of stuff, including bringing one of your people with us as press. How cool is that, Patrick? You can't buy that. No, I think it's cool every time we get to go, and, and we get a lot of access for being press. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's very transparent. It's very uh, good times, and we have, what, 42 events we're going to in 2018? 42 events that are on the list. That doesn't mean we're going to go to all of them, and if if somebody wants us to be at an event and they want to sponsor it, we can add that to the list as well. Upcoming, we have the NAEP Summit, February 5th through the 9th, and the IDC Health Safety Environment training that's the sixth through the seventh so we're gonna have to split our time between those yeah. but uh those are the the two coming up but we've got yeah 42 throughout the year yeah which is really cool so sarah this has been great second time you're on the show hopefully emin edited out all the coughing fits so nobody yeah. knows yeah thank you so much for being on the show we learned so much in fact while you were out coughing <laughs> patrick and i were talking about how this is a really good angle we need to have sarah back on the show again yeah i mean the time flew by it's it's nice to talk when you have an expert that can you know some people may think this topic is dry whether we're talking insurance or legal issues <laughs> never but it, it's a lot of useful information that it, you know you you should plan for an event but if you haven't planned for me, you need to know what to do. So, well, to have an attorney kind of walk you through the steps. I mean, even even if my own business made me realize, hey, there's some things I probably need to go check on. So. I hope she's not charging us by the tenth of the hour. Yeah, <laughs> I'll send the bill. Yeah, Sarah, this has been great. Sarah, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? 
So you can find me online. My name is Sarah Stogner, S-T-O-G-N-E-R. I'm on LinkedIn. You're my, all over LinkedIn. My my law yeah. firm that I'm with is called Carver Darden. We're out of New Orleans, but I work remotely from Midland most of the time now. So they can Google me and find me. Conferences. You, you go to a lot of conferences. Anything coming up that you're going to be speaking at? Well, I've got the Society of Environmental Insurance Professionals in San Francisco that I'll be speaking at this summer. I'm also giving an energy industry update for the Texas State Bar Advanced Insurance Coverage Seminar. Some hot topics at yeah, the, we, both of those. We're <laughs> going to be talking about cyber coverage. Well, that's another thing that's, ah, that's big in this industry is people think of you know crimes and cyber target breaches, Home Depot, things like that. So we've t- we've talked with uh, some companies that do some cyber protection, but never from the legal aspect. So that's going to be your next invite is to talk yeah, about cyber. I bet I know what we have Sarah back on talking about next time already. What's that? Well, we just the, the, oh well, yeah, that's what yeah. I just said. Yeah, yeah. yeah so great. Good. Perfect. Yeah, Thanks. We'll put links in the show notes to all of that stuff as well. So people, I've actually had uh, several of y'all reach out to me and say, hey, can you give us some of this stuff that you're talking about? We have it. You can go to allyeshsne.com, look for the show page and the links for everything we talked about. All the contact information are there. Patrick slaves away to put that together and make it easier on you so you can just click and see what we're doing. All right. So it's been great. Patrick, ready to get out of here? I'm a little upset they're not reading it. I, mean, I do put a lot of work into that. You do and put it. a lot of work. And I've actually had quite a few people say, hey, can you provide it to us? And so let's make it clear. This show and all the shows, there are pages for each individual podcast episode with all the links there. So go you, check can, it you can register to win the bag. You can listen to the show. You can connect with Mark and, and myself on LinkedIn, Twitter, everything else. So yeah, go to the show notes. Yep. And give us or I'm going to stop doing them. <laughs> <laughs> and give, me your, give us your email address. I promise not to spam you. All right, ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond.